Father, when there are those that come with false doctrine, those who would seek to gain power, to garner support inside of any church, we give you thanks that you have told us this would happen, but also you give us guidelines on what to look for if it takes place. We would ask that you would just put this knowledge in our hearts to remain. We would not forget For Lord, we're going to be here many more years and we might run across many more people who mean harm. Those of nefarious character would seek to dissuade and disrupt. And we pray that you would help us to stand firm on the rock, knowing what truth is and what error is. And as Paul exposes some error and leads us into truth, I pray that you would enlighten us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are those that were called super apostles in chapter 11, verse 5. We're just going to pick it up there. But I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. If you remember, people came into the church and they had letters of recommendation and they were good speakers and they were probably handsome and they sought to seek control. And those false apostles that had come to Corinth, they accused Paul of being timid person, bold in his writings, or in other words, inauthentic. They accused Paul of being a bad public speaker. They criticized Paul for not receiving an income. They criticized Paul for not having letters of recommendation. And they criticized Paul for his bona fides or his qualifications or his achievements or even his good faith. Now, going on in verse 6, after getting the context here, I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the region of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. So apparently there are people or there were people inside the church of Corinth that were being a burden to them and Paul at least twice says he doesn't want to be a burden and so he did not stress them out or put additional uh, requirements on them to give him some income as he ministered there now why didn't he receive an income from the church in Corinth in first Timothy 5 in verses 17 and 18 it talks about those who minister the gospel how they deserve to receive an income from giving that gospel. The elders, verse 17, who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. So when it refers to double honor and treading out the grain, and a worker deserves his wages... It is a command in Scripture that those who give the gospel are supposed to receive their income from giving the gospel or receive an offering. 
But he wanted to avoid speculation that in some way he was taking advantage of the believers in Corinth, as I previously said. And he was condemned if he, if he would have received an income. Those people who would have come in would probably have said, you're taking advantage of the church in Corinth. You ought not to be doing that. But then they condemned him for not receiving an income. Maybe he's a false teacher because we know that God wants the ministers to receive an income. And so it's kind of like he's condemned if he does, he's condemned if he doesn't. And Paul, in his own words, describes why he did not draw a salary going on in verse 11. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do, and I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. So Paul is not just referring to himself, but he's referring to his traveling companions. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And so he brings up this phrase, false apostles. Now, what is exactly a false apostle, and what is it in our day and age? Well, first we have to go back and look, what is an apostle? It's one who represents Jesus Christ. He's an ambassador of the gospel. He gives that out. He establishes doctrine, and he's part of the foundation of the church. Now, there are three things that make up the foundation of a church. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So when they would build something, back in the days of Christ, they would take a cornerstone. And it would be completely square. They would set it in the corner of the building. And from that stone, they would build out all the other stones. They would use the Pythagorean theorem to get everything nice and square that would be on there. And they'd cut all the stones for the foundation. They would get the floor completely laid based off that foundation stone. That's what you would start with. Even today in construction, what they'll do is they'll set up these boards and run strings and then they'll make sure that these strings are not only parallel to each other but perpendicular, that they're exactly a 90-degree angle. Now, depending on which company you hire to build a house, that may not be a 90-degree angle. It may be a 92-degree angle. We have a little stem wall in our house, you know, and and when we had this tile, you would look at the tile. As soon as you walked in, these lines would be going down with this tile. They'd be perfectly straight. And then the stem wall would cut into the line. It's like, can't you get the stem wall straight? And it's the first thing you look at when you walk into a house. But back then, you would cut the stone. You would shave it. You would mold them together. And you would have this perfect square or a rectangle. And, and so they knew how to do this with great accuracy. And when building a house, the foundation has to be installed first. You can't build the house and go back and say, I'm going to put a new foundation on this. Now, in Katrina and in a couple of the hurricanes that we went to, especially down in Louisiana, Mississippi, in that area, they would build entire houses off of post base. Now, I don't know if you know what a post base is, but usually it's a concrete um, device, a stone. It looks like a stone. It's, it's square and it tapers down on either side. And on the top, 
you will either have a, a joist hanger of some type, a Simpson tie, or you will have a flat piece of wood. And especially in Mississippi, they used the flat piece of wood if they used the post space. Sometimes they didn't use a post space. Sometimes they just used brick. And they put the brick in a herringbone pattern, stacked two this way, and two this way, and two this way, and two this way. They had six brick. And then they'd lay their bottom beams across those brick. And there might be ten of them along the front of the house. And when the floods came from Katrina and these others, the Sandy uh, and, and New Jersey, uh, New Jersey wasn't as bad as Mississippi. But the entire two-story house, you would see one corner of it just drop because there would be some type of erosion underneath that. And there are companies in Louisiana and Mississippi, all they do is come in and restore the foundations and lift the whole building up and get it all proper. Well, if you have a good foundation, you're going to have a good house. Those houses were not built well, but they have to be, uh, be installed first, not after the structure has already been built. Now today, the way that they do it in construction is, as I said, they they stick out strings and they put up boards and and stakes and then they start putting the forms in to place the uh, concrete later on and they install everything underneath that. They put all the pipes, electrical, whatever needs to go in the driveway where the garage is. They slope that down 1% to 2%. And you can see all of this before the concrete is ever poured. And then they put down a piece of plastic. Then they put down sand. Then they put down rebar and they tie it all together. And once it's inspected, they're able to pour the whole thing at one time. It's just a monopour. They, they get all the trucks they need and they fill up all of these cavities that are there and they set the foundation. And the foundation cannot be set in San Diego here until you, if you have any banks, all the banks have to be landscaped first. So there's a way to do it. And, and then they say, okay, you can build your foundation. Once all the foundations are set and they inspect those, okay, now you can put up the sides. But the foundation is set. They don't add to it after that. So you got the picture here, you set the foundation, then you build the house. That's how it goes. Now, other qualifications for the office of an apostle. In Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26, after Judas had gone and gotten his reward for his wickedness, uh, we understand what took place with that. Well, after that, in verse 20, Peter said, It is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, that there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. So from this, guided by the Holy Spirit, Peter felt they were supposed to appoint another apostle to take the place of Judas. He goes on to say, Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So in order to be an apostle, according to Scripture, according to the dictates of the Old Testament, and Peter speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit... They said, okay, he had to be there from the baptism of Jesus all the way to his resurrection. Had to be a witness of that. Now, Paul was a witness of that. 
Remember, Paul was the one who was persecuting the Christians. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was raised under Gamaliel. He was a smart, sharp cookie. He knew what was going on. He would have been very aware of what was taking place in Jerusalem and up in the area of Galilee. So uh, another thing about a true apostle, they have signs, wonders, and miracles that follow them. So, so far, we know there's the foundation of the church. We know that they had to have seen Jesus in his ministry from his baptism until his resurrection, the whole thing. And then also, these apostles would do the miraculous. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, which we haven't gotten to yet, the things that mark an apostle. This is a mark. This is how you know somebody's an apostle. How do you know somebody's a major league baseball player? You see them in uniform. You see them on television. You see them on the mound. They're throwing balls back and forth. How do you know somebody's in the military? They have a uniform. They carry a gun. They go to war. How do you know these things about these people? How do you know who a paramedic is? How do you know who a fireman is? There are signs that they have. Now, if somebody puts on a uniform that is not in the military, whoo, not good. You know, one time I had a bag of rags. And in those rags was a perfectly good shirt. And it was a fireman's shirt for East County out here. And I thought, you know, I was doing work in the garage and stuff and just fiddling around. So I go, I'm going to put on this old shirt. And I don't have to worry about it. It's it's a firefighter symbol on there, you know, and I, I was just wearing it. And so I go over here to Peyton's and I walk in with this shirt on. And they go, oh, firefighter. I go, oh, no. I'm not a firefighter. Oh, well, because you have the shirt on, we're giving you a discount anyhow. You know, I thought, wow, maybe I ought to print some of these up and walk around, you know. But that would be disingenuous to do that. I'm not a firefighter. I just happened to put on this old shirt. And the guy who was in there, he was a volunteer firefighter. And he looked at me with a a glare, and he said, what are you doing wearing that shirt if you're not a firefighter? I go, Dude, it was in a rag bag, okay? Chill out. And he didn't want to do so. He just walked away. He was huffing and gruffing and billy goat gruff, I think is what he was like. And, and I thought, okay, I guess I'm not going to wear that shirt very much longer, you know. But I wasn't a firefighter. But if you see somebody in a uniform, you know who they are. That's a sign of who they are. A sign of an apostle would be doing signs, wonders, and miracles. So today... How do we judge somebody if they say they're an apostle? You would say, were you there at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was baptized? And did you see his resurrection? And if they said, well, the Lord revealed it to me. Okay, the Lord revealed it to you. Well, we're going to give you that. Well, what about uh, this idea of signs, wonders, and miracles? What have you done lately? Have you gone to Children's Hospital and cleared out all the beds because you wanted to give the message of the gospel and establish it by healing people? Have you uh, raised somebody from the dead lately? Have you done that? Oh, they were lost in their sins. They were dead to the things of the Lord, and it's a miracle that they get saved. I'm sorry, that's not a miracle that the Bible is talking about. It would be something like calling down fire from heaven, splitting Lindo Lake Corey could walk through the middle of it, you know, whatever, whatever the case might be, you're going to do some type of miracle, call fire down from heaven and consume the enemies of God, whatever it might be, it's going to be a miracle. And a wonder is something where you go, I wonder what this means. Like for instance, the 12 plagues in the, or the 10 plagues in Israel, those were called both signs 
and wonders. They were called signs because they went against the gods of Egypt. It was a sign to them that their gods were false. But also when all of these things took place and the blackness came over the land, you would wonder what's going on. What is happening here? What is taking place? It's kind of like COVID. It's worldwide. Never happened before. What is this a sign of? What does it portend? Why is the world in the situation it is now? I believe it's a sign and we're supposed to watch. This is something brand new. This has never happened before. You know, God also says that when the days approach, there's going to be signs in the heavens as well. I'm waiting for a supernova. I'm waiting for something to take place that you can see during the day. It's like, okay, this is unusual. If that happens, we're meeting at the church. Okay? We're getting ready to get raptured here. So the one who calls themselves an apostle today they have to have the signs, wonders, and miracles. Another sign would be speaking in tongues. It's called a sign, and it's a sign for unbelievers. It's not for believers. Or the Son of Man appearing in the sky in Matthew chapter 24. Or how about going down to San Diego Bay or Mission Bay, throwing a line in because you're fishing, because you know you have tremendous bills, and those bills need to be taken care of, and the fish you bring up has a nice big fat gold coin in it. That would kind of be a sign, wouldn't it? Jesus did that. We know that in Matthew chapter 17, verse 27, to pay the temple tax. And the disciples letting down their nets on one side of the boat and catching nothing. And Jesus says, throw it on the other side of the boat. And the nets begin to break. What does this mean? You know, the, so many fish coming up. These types of things are signs. And we want to pay attention to them, but there's not a sign under every bush or behind every building. It's something that is going to be unusual. And a wonder, like I said, signs and wonders in Egypt that took place in a miracle would be raising somebody from the dead, healing those who are crippled from birth, restoring the sight to the blind, and healing leprosy. So if somebody comes along and says that they're an apostle and they haven't done anything like this, they are a false apostle. They are crediting to themselves an office that was set up as a foundation of the church at the time of Christ. I do not believe today there are any apostles, but there are people masquerading as apostles even in our day and age. And this brings us to the question, well, are there prophets? Now, prophets, you know, uh, there are people that prophesy in Bethel Church in Reading, and they get a lot of things wrong. John Wimber, when the Vineyard Church was up and active that split off from Calvary chapels. They would prophesy all kinds of things, and half of them would come true. What does Scripture say about a prophet in the Old Testament? You've got to be 100% right 100% of the time. No errors, no strikes, no fouls. And if you do that, you are a false prophet. So those people who come along and they claim to be prophet today, uh, like uh, Louis Farrakhan, the prophet Elijah Muhammad, you know, I'm sorry, dude, you're not a prophet after the order of the Lord. And the Lord says, if you're right 100% of the time, then you're a prophet. Now, there are two prophets that show up in the book of Revelation during the tribulation period. So it, it, it causes you to ask the question, well, in the Old and New Testaments, there were prophets, and it seems like the prophets are the foundation of the church, so did that end as well when there's going to be two more prophets in the book of Revelation? I'm not going to 
pull out separate straws and say, well, I don't know, maybe so. Um, she loves me, she loves me not, I have no idea. I just say, well, if you're a prophet of God, you speak for God and you've never been wrong. And you're not going to give new revelation because Scripture is closed. Four times in Scripture says, do not add to the Scriptures. And so if you're proclaiming what God has to say, well, that could be the gift of prophecy. And you're proclaiming it in line with what the Word says. But there's not going to be any new prophecy. If some guy comes along and says, uh, listen, or prophet or a prophetess, if they come along and they say, this is what you're going to do today. You're going to go out. You're going to drive down to downtown San Diego. You're going to see a man wearing a blue hat. You're going to talk to him. He's going to tell you where to go. And when you get to that place, somebody has a message from God for you. And if you do all that and it comes true, okay, it could be the gift of prophecy or a prophet. But when was the last time you also did a miracle? Most prophets, they would do some type of miracle. Old Testament prophets, especially Elijah, and Elijah, those two, they did all kinds of miracles. Well, maybe they didn't do one, but if they claim to be a prophet, and by the way, we've had people in this church come in, and uh, I forget which passage it was, but it, it says something along the line, and you did not recognize the time there was a prophet among you. And this one person had me read that. Uh, and I know that he was thinking it pertained to him. And I turned to him and I said, are you telling me you're a prophet? And he turned to me and he said, is that what you're saying? And I thought, oh, you sly, sly dog. And this is a guy who thought we ought to take the whole church up to the mountains in the Cuyamaca area and get machine gun permits because the end is coming and we're going to have to hunker down. I'm thinking to myself, what happened to the rapture? I think we're out of here in the rapture. We're not going to have to worry about that stuff. And just all kinds of problems with this guy. Eventually, <clears throat> he didn't come to the church anymore. But you have to be able to tell if somebody is a false prophet, a false apostle, a false teacher. And that's another thing about these super apostles. They were false teachers. They wanted to change some of the doctrines and practices inside the church. And it, it's not we're stuck in the mode, it's the way we've done it, it works, we're going to continue with it forever. We're not changing anything. Now, the message is always the same. The way that you present it, the mode in which you present it, it, it can change. We just don't want to, or we want to make sure we don't end up looking like the world in order to accomplish that. But there are those who would teach false doctrine and want to implement false practices. And even Paul says in verse 14, and no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light, somebody who comes in and they look like they're an angel of light. By the way, just, just a side note, I'm going to give you this, but I'll repeat it later. I told Patty about this last night. They have determined <clears throat> or they have discovered how to take the gene which produces bioluminescence in jellyfish and other creatures and they have put it or they're planning on putting it into vaccines so that when it goes into your body, they can look at the spot that you got the vaccine under a particular light and they can see if it glows bioluminescence in there. And guess what they call it? Luciferus, angel of light. That's what they call it. Now, if you don't believe me, go ahead and look it up. Not right now on Google, uh, that enemy 
search engine. But you can look it up. It is there. Luciferus. Now, where was I? Satan will also perform false and counterfeit signs, wonders, and miracles. So those who are truly of the enemy, Satan, will be able to counterfeit signs, wonders, and miracles. We are told this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. Now, why did God use miracles? God always used miracles to establish what was being said, what was being taught. The message that came was an accompaniment or had an accompaniment of a miracle so that you would know it came from God. That's why during the time of Christ here, he performed so many miracles and even encouraged those who did not believe his words. He said, if you don't believe my words, believe the miracles. This is in John chapter 10, verse 37. It says, do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand the father is in me and I in the father. So that's the purpose of miracles is to establish a message. When Satan comes along, he's going to do miracles in order to establish a message. And that message is going to be in the spirit of Antichrist. Jesus Christ is no savior or I'm the, the new incarnation of Christ and you're supposed to follow me, you're supposed to worship me. And he is going to be able to deceive most all of the world with these miracles. And I'm sure there will be fanciful miracles, maybe even biblical miracles. What if he repeats the one of turning water into blood? What if he does that? Or what if he causes the sun to go dark? You know, these are big miracles that would take place. And if he could do those, he can deceive the masses. And that's what's in front of us. Now, there are examples of false teachers that I'd like to give you. But in in the church, a false teacher will look and sound like a real, biblical, born-again teacher. They will use the same language. They will speak Christianese. You guys know what Christianese is, don't you? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Uh, Maranatha, brother. That's all Christianese. If you speak that outside the walls of the church, most people are going to go, what are you talking about? And, And so they will look and they will sound just like Christian teachers. They will fit right in and slowly introduce their false teachings after they gain some respect, a following, and some... Well, I don't want to say notoriety. That's being notorious. They will get an evil uh, type of reputation inside the church. But they will become well-known. Money will become an issue uh, because usually false teachers want to get a hold of some of that money. Uh, They will even abuse believers in Christ. They will try to control them, uh, physically abuse them, even uh, speak harshly to them to establish their dominance. They're using worldly techniques in order to gain some type of power. Then boasting will be a part of their character. They will be bursting with self-confidence and constantly making references or referencing their self-accomplishments. <clears throat> that, that's a dead giveaway right there. If somebody is in the flesh, if they show up and they start speaking about everything that they have done, everything that they have accomplished, and what they're going to do, uh, that is the work of the flesh, uh, you know, the, 
the things that drive us in our flesh, the lust of the eyes, the, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life are boasting what one has or what one has done. And so if somebody comes in and claims to be a teacher and they start speaking about all the great things God has done through them and how wonderful they are, then that's a clear sign to have the red flags go up. Now, there is an ultimate end for these false teachers and false apostles, and Paul does not pull a punch. Now, I don't know if you understand what pulling a punch is. It's where if you have two fighters and they're fighting each other, they don't let the full impact of the brunt of their fist hit. Now, it hits, but not the full force. Uh, For instance, I used to do this thing with my granddaughters and daughters and my son where you take your fist and you get real close to hitting them. You know, it's kind of a game. Get real close to hitting them and you pound your chest at the same time. You go like that. And it gets real close to their face. You know, it kind of startles them. It's pulling a punch, you know. It doesn't really even hit them, but it kind of startles them a little bit. And they'd laugh, ha, 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 let me try it. And they'd try to do it, you know, too. And it, it just didn't work very well. But Paul is not pulling a punch. On this punch, he grabs, metaphorically, his fist, he closes it down hard, and he lays it right upside the jaw of these people who are false teachers and false, uh, false apostles. In verse 15, it says, It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. In other words... They're going to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You're going straight to hell for doing this, for deceiving the people inside the church. So Paul is using very strong language here. He's being perfectly blunt, and he's acting without restraint in what he writes. Now, Paul begins to argue for his apostleship, just as these false teachers do, albeit in a foolish manner. He's basically saying, okay, I can play the same game that you're playing. But he calls himself a fool for doing it. Now, in verse 16, he goes on to say, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. So he accuses them of being full of themselves, full of pride, full of arrogance. He goes, okay, I'll play this game. I'll do it too. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. Now, he's also not pulling a punch with the rest of the people inside of Corinth. He's laying that fist right upside the jaw when he says, you gladly put up with fools since you were so wise. This is the epitome of sarcasm. If you've never seen sarcasm in Scripture, this is it. Oh, yeah, Mr. Smarty Pants over there. That's how he's carrying on. So they were willing to put up with foolish men who boast, and so he takes the same tack. Okay, if you listen to and accept them, and then listen to me and accept me when I speak the same way. It's basically what he's saying. In verse 20, in fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. So 
he's turning to the people in Corinth and say, you put up with these foolish people who are there, even if they slap you in the face. And he's doing this to shame them. Now, remember where I said this is probably the letter uh, from chapter 9 on that Paul wrote that probably was a little rough for the Corinthian church to hear, this little section. Well, you can see why. It's not like the rest of the tone. Oh, my brothers and sisters, we will all be changed. We will all go in the rapture of the church, and I love you, and you're not going to disappoint me, I know, because you've been so faithful, and all of a sudden, you put up with these fools. It's like he's slapping them across the face and saying, wake up, what are you doing? He says, to my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Again, sarcasm. (laughs) Forgive me. I wasn't able to slap you in the face too. Forgive me for that. And and you see how the sarcasm is just running through. And of course, it would have caused those who believe in Christ some grief inside the church of Corinth. And what is he using here? He's using a little bit of guilt. And he's doing it because these foolish false apostles and false teachers were doing it. He's doing the same thing that they were doing in hopes that they would listen to him and come to their senses like, what? This isn't in character with the Apostle Paul. He's using absurdity to illustrate the absurd, if you've heard that phrase before. And they are putting up with absurdity. What anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. And he goes on and starts this list. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. And, you know, he's being duplicitous. I'm talking like these guys now. I hope you accept me. But, you know, I'm talking like a fool. He goes, I am more. And so there were these believers, quote, unquote, believers, who were Jews that came into the church that wanted to keep the Old Testament law as well as believe in Christ. And Paul opposed them, especially if you go to the book of Galatians. He is in their face in the book of Galatians, these Judaizers. And this is why uh, we understand that they were probably these Palestinian Jews with letters and they had gone to school and they were to be listened to. And if somebody talks about all their authentic credentials, be very leery. Uh, the like I said before, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. If they talk about themselves over and over, we know that we're supposed to uh, put up our guard. First John chapter two verse sixteen talks about this. It says, "For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world." Now he continues at the end of twenty three. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, dangers from bandits, and dangers from my own countrymen, and dangers from Gentiles, and dangers in the city, and danger in the country, and danger at sea, and danger in false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have 
often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who wants to sign up for a resume like that? And, and Paul did so willingly. Now, it's not that he rushed into it. He just found himself in the circumstances that brought the suffering, all because he wanted to proclaim Christ in the gospel. If you are faithful to proclaim Christ in the gospel, now you might not be shipwrecked, but you might be thrown in jail, depending on which country you go to. You might be persecuted. You might have to go without food. You, you might in some way be tortured. Like I said, again, it just depends on what country you're in. Try doing this in China. You want to be a, an evangelist to the country of China? You can sign up for that. You know, they, <clears throat> it's funny. Guess what country produces the most Bibles in the world? China. But you cannot own one in China. Isn't that amazing? They're after the profit motive, but they don't want their citizens to read the Bible. And of course, back in the 70s and 80s, Brother Andrew, and he would smuggle Bibles in. I remember Mike McIntosh talking about that and how sometimes the customs agents, their eyes would just be blind. They wouldn't even see them in the suitcases full of these Bibles. And that's, that's a God thing happening. So Paul himself, you know how they spoke down to him? He was an educated man. He went to the Jewish university in Jerusalem, so to speak. In Acts chapter 22, verse 2, it says, Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of um, Cilicia, but brought up in the city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. So he went to what would be known as their university. He studied, he knew the Old Testament inward and outward. He was more zealous than anyone of his day. He was commended for his dedication to God. And Paul considered everything that he had gained in the world a loss for knowing Christ. In Philippians 3, 7, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. You know, a lot of people, and I hope this doesn't offend some who are in here, but we have our I love me walls. That's where you hold your degree, your doctorate, your baccalaureate, whatever it might be, and you put it on the wall right there. Maybe you got it varnished or resined and it's put on a, uh, a board of some kind and it can hang there and then your trophies, you know, your trophies are over here for badminton and tennis and whatever it might be and your little medals are over here and this is what I did back in 1968 and, and these are the letters of recommendation and so you have this little shrine. Now, I'm sure none of you have that in here, but that's what he's talking about here. All those things that he gained, he considered them rubbish for knowing Christ. And in the world, they would have meant something. Even, you know, I, I lament this a little bit. In Christian circles, I, I watch a lot of uh, Christian videos, and I'll, I'll watch discussions, I'll watch debates. I, I just like to keep up on what's out there. And the first thing the moderator will do 
will explain all the qualifications of the Christian who comes there, that they have a doctorate in theology, that they studied at Cambridge University and also at Pepperdine, and they have a worldly wisdom that comes with going to those places, but then they went to this particular Christian college and they've written 40 books over their lifetime and, and they give all the credentials, all the bona fides, all the qualifications that are there. And then they let them speak. It's like that means everything to people of the world. But in Christ, it means nothing. You could turn to them and say, how many times have you been shipwrecked? How many times have you been beaten? How many times have you been stoned? What have you had to endure for the gospel of Jesus Christ? See, those are the credentials that Paul holds on to rather than all of his academic achievements that he might have success in or the letters that might have been given to him. So his credentials were his battle wounds and Paul would not trade the hardship and the suffering of, uh, for the sake of Christ for anything. Even Peter and John gained so much by knowing Christ it was evident uh, or uh, it was recognized by the leaders of the Jews. Remember these guys were fishermen. Kind of roughnecks I would imagine up in the area of Galilee. It would be the equivalent of uh, some people consider a southern accent uh, less than admirable. I really like the southern ad- accent. Uh, I have relatives in Oklahoma, and when I listen to them speak, I want to copy that. Or, you know, when I hear accents in general, I like to copy them. And when I went to Ireland, I started talking like the Irish yet, don't you know? And, and when I'm mixing a little bit of Wisconsin with the Irish, but it, it's this idea, it's this idea that when you hear a particular accent, it means something. For instance, all the news broadcasters, have you ever heard one speak in a southern accent? You don't. They all speak like Southern California because that's the smart way to speak. And so these Galileans, they had an accent and they knew it when they went to Jerusalem. They knew you're a Galilean. I can tell by the way you're talking. You know, you're from the south, so to speak. And so even though they came from an area that they were considered less than intellectual, they knew that they had been with Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, when, when they were before the leaders in Israel, it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So they were transformed, you know, uneducated fishermen that had this accent not to be listened to. And all of a sudden they have all this boldness and they know exactly what they're saying and what the Old Testament has to say. And that's because they've been with Christ and they also had the spirit of God within them. Paul goes on to say, who is weak and I do not feel weak? And who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under the king Artus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from the window in the wall and slipped through his hands. So he points not to his accomplishments, but to his weakness. He points away from the accolades of the world, and he says, you know, I, I am so weak. And in our weakness, that's when Christ becomes manifest. And this should be the goal 
of every disciple of Jesus, become less in the eyes of the world so that Christ will become more. And this, I'm not talking about a false humility. Uh, You know, somebody was awarded a badge for humility and they accepted it. You know, it's like... That's not very humble to accept a badge for uh, for humility. And we're not supposed to do, I'm so humble, oh, I'm so humble. We're not supposed to do it like that. We just live our lives and we don't want anybody to notice what's going on when we do things for the Lord. And if the Lord wants us to be recognized, then he'll recognize us. But he wants us to be humble. Even John the Baptist, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, said the same thing. He must increase and I must decrease. So this is our goal as believers. We don't lift ourselves up. We debase ourselves, not in a false way, but inside we walk humbly with God. And if we do that, he will bless us. And it might turn into a blessing of hardship, which will gain for us a reward in heaven beyond anything that we could ever ask or imagine. My prayer for you is that God would bless you with this insight as you walk in your daily walk. And one final thing about this, you know how Paul is just slapping in the face the false apostles and the the people inside the church. And yet he does say in Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And he goes and slaps them. You know, and, and... I see that dichotomy. There's a time for everything under heaven. And Paul was an apostle, and we need to listen to the words that he teaches. Now, at this time, what we're going to do is we're going to receive communion. If Patty and Madison want to come on up, and if you want to turn down the lights in the middle here and just leave the outside ones on, we are going to receive communion. And the mode of operation here is going to be just one row at a time, come up and grab the cup and the bread. They're, they're both together and just go around the outside and file back into your seat. Once the music starts, let me start playing the song. And as we're playing the song, if you need to turn to God and say, you know, God, I'm part of this nation and forgive me for what I have had in a part uh, of this nation and its possible downfall. And you can pray something along that line. If there's something else you need to confess, this is the time to do it. And once the song is complete, Rudy will come up and he will pray for the bread and he will pray for the cup. So uh, let's sing a song at this time.